it was great talking to Michael. He is really enjoying his semi-retirement right, just going from tree event to tree event and living it up. I want to thank everybody that took the time to share these last few episodes. I can tell people have been uh, sharing them. So whether you're sharing it on your social media, on your email, or just texting a friend, uh, thank you so much because it is making a difference. This podcast is a lot more fun for us when we get interactions from you guys. So feel free to reach out on our social media or reach out on our email. That's treethinkingpodcast at gmail.com and suggest ideas for shows or ask us questions or we love getting feedback from people and uh, it helps make the show better. So thank you guys so much. So without further ado, we're going to take care of some business and then we'll get right to it. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be, a substitute for professional arboriculture advice and should never be relied upon to perform or direct arboricultural work. The Tree Thinking Podcast makes no representations as to the accuracy, completeness, or suitability of any information on this podcast and will not be liable for any damages arising from the use of any information in the practice of arboriculture or tree work. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The podcast and its hosts are not to be held responsible for misuse, cited, and or uncited cited copies of the content within this podcast by others. The Tree Thinking Podcast may not be reproduced or distributed without the express written consent of the Tree Thinking Podcast. Michael started tree work back in the 60s, and that led him on a path he's still on today. He started his career dragging brush, worked his way up to being a climber, and enjoyed a full career. These days, he's still building the arborist community, whether it's through organizing groups on the internet, working on tree fund events, or hauling gear to help set up a big climb. On this episode of the Tree Thinking Podcast, our conversation goes from tree work in the 60s to talking to the future on building community, pioneering the future, and the semi-retired life of Michael Oxman. All right, we're back again. Uh, this week, we're just kind of uh, shooting from the cuff, but we got a, a friend of the show on. Um, so uh, let's introduce ourselves. My name's Andrew. I'm Rob. <laughs> Jamie. Becca. Corey. And we've got Mike Oxman. I'm Michael Oxman, hey. rational tree surgeon. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Yeah. So... Uh, We've been talking about getting together for a little while. It, you know, I talk to so many people, and you know, we an episode will come up, and then it'll things will just get bumped back. So I've been looking forward to talking to you. Originally, we were going to talk about kind of tree fund and some of the projects you've done in the past around tree fund. Do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about those? Well, the tree fund is a uh, tree research scholarship fund for college students and their professors who are at the university level. So it stands for um, T-R-E-E Fund is Tree Research Education Endowment Fund. And it's been around since about 2002. It started off uh, before that with the uh, ISA and the Tree Care Industry Association 
and but then they combined in 2002. So now it's just one big happy family of the Arborist favorite charity. Oh, cool! Nice, awesome. So you did a. Uh, I think one of the videos you sent me was a big zip line uh, that you guys set up. What, what's the story behind that? Well, that, we set up a zip line uh, in Forest Grove, Oregon, last uh, probably September. And uh, we had some rope that was donated by Carol Tree. And uh, you know, we, you know, we wanted to check it out. It was the Petzl Axis, A-X-I-S. Rope, okay. 11 millimeter, kind of yellowish, greenish. And uh, we set the 330 foot zip line up in a oak tree that was six feet in diameter. And then it ran uh, probably from about 100 feet high down to about 60 feet high in the, the, this clump of other trees that we had to guy back to each other for safety. Oh, cool. What was the distance between the trees? 330 feet. Oh, and, and so that, uh, that ended up on a YouTube video called um, uh, Send It Session. Send It <laughs> Session. Cool. When the person wrote Zipline, they were, they were regarded as sending it. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you guys think of the Petzl Access line? Well, I, you know, it doesn't stretch. It's uh, lightweight and in fact, we're going to be using it uh, on another climb um, next week in uh, the Giant Sequoias up around Yosemite. Oh, cool! Yeah, Andrew was saying that's where you're. Are you on your way there right now? Yeah, I'm on this. I'm on this. Like, like I'm old, so I'm like semi-retired, uh-huh. <laughs> and basically I'm ducking work. And I'm on the road right now. I've I've traveled three hundred three hundred seventy-five miles from Seattle. Now I'm down in Gold Hill, Oregon. Okay. And then I'm going to be heading over to the coast to see the new suspension walkway at the Sequoia Zoo in uh, Eureka, California. And then I'm going to head down the coast, go through the Avenue of the Giants, um, pick up some more rope. We had another spool of rope donated and then take it over to Yosemite where we're going to be climbing. Nice. Yeah, that's a, that sounds like a great trip. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that they call it a Sequoia Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that. Well, thing. you know. Yeah, because it's like it's you're going to check out a living thing. and But I don't think they go out there like with raw chicken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Catch a sequoia feeding at noon. <laughs> That's just when the mist comes rolling in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cool. Well, you guys are, you're an old growth tree climber, Andrew. So, so you know that it's an extra special thing when you get up there. You, you know that when you bring people up there, they are so totally jazzed that you become infectiously excited, too. And, and the feeling of exhilaration compounds uh, off of these various people feeding. Just, just like these comments that we just got right here. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, anytime you can, you know, it's one of the cool things about being a tree climber, bringing uh, someone that hasn't climbed up into the a big tree before into a tree is you kind of experience that excitement of climbing for the first time again. You know, um, I think everybody that's, uh, is here. We actually just did a big, uh, tree climb this last weekend. And I, uh, I was able to bring my daughter, uh, up into the tree, uh, for the first time she got up, uh, 200 feet up a 300 foot tree. 
And it, it was a very powerful experience for her. You know, the emotions were across the board. I mean, she was uh, like bawling, crying partway up, you know, to just like ecstatic that she got up to, you know, for, I mean, it just was across the board. You know, it, it was pretty uh, amazing to watch. So you're just an enabler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do my best <laughs> only for the people I care about. Yeah, I was just sending down the tree and met up with you guys, and uh, she had kind of her head buried in her arms, you know, just dealing with all those emotions, but she still managed to throw up the surf, surf's up kind of yeah. shock and brass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was pretty funny. It's, yeah. You know, she she first started freaking out about heights probably 15 feet off the ground. Yeah. You know, it was just like, oh, God, oh, God, like – I, I, I'm so scared. It's like, it's okay to be scared, honey. You're going to be fine. You know, wait. And it turns out this was what drove her the rest of the climb. I was like, just wait till you get up in the canopy. It's like a whole nother world up there, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, and this tree, it's, you know, almost 200 feet to get to the canopy. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a lot of exposed trunk and it's just a massive trunk. Um, and she, she did, she would go up about 10, 15 feet and stop and have another emotional breakdown. <laughs> and like, I'm so scared. <sighs> I don't, I don't want to go on any further. And I'd be like, it's, it's okay, honey. You don't have to do this for me. Only climb for yourself. This is why you're here is for you to, you know, accomplish your goals. And she's like, I know I want to get to that canopy. The canopy is going to be real nice. So I'm going to, yeah. all right, I'm going to keep going, you know, and go up another 10, 15 feet and then just repeat the process all over again. <laughs> well, I've noticed for myself personally and anyone that I've been around that's climbing for the first time in a big tree, like once you get over those first couple of whirls and you're in the tree, that you feel a lot safer. It's, yeah. It's a lot more. Yeah, it's less exposed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I think she would have, she got just up into it, but I think she was just so emotionally drained from yeah. all the emotions going up that she was just ready to come down mm-hmm. at that point. But uh, Scott Altenhoff was there and Heidi was there, and so they just kind of hung out with us kind of in that first beginning part of the canopy. Yeah. And I just having a couple, she does, she knows them both, but not really well. But now she's best friends with them. She like even on the way home, she's like, "Do you have a uh, Scott and Heidi's number?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, I mean I work with them." And she's like, "Okay, good. I I just might want to send them some text later." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. are you going down Scotty. there to uh, to guide, or you're just going down there for a, a fun uh, fun little getaway? Well, I I'm a porter. <laughs> a porter. <laughs> uh, that's all I do is I just haul rope around. But, oh, okay. but, you know, people wonder, you know, they, they these people are all tree climbers. Uh-huh. And once you shoot that crossbow arrow and uh, you're over that bottom branch at 150 feet or wherever it is, and you step off of that, that rope onto that bottom branch, it's pretty much like any other big tree. Right. It's yeah. the, the hard part is the clear trunk. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, just on this last climb, I was feeling that where, I mean, the ascent, you're realizing how big the tree is. Then when I got out on the top and I'm hanging out, you know, you kind of forget how big it is. You're looking around and taking everything in. And then on the descent, you realize how big it is once again. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, you're kind of climbing up through space at that in that initial 
uh, that initial climb because you probably redirected over a branch. So you're not right up against the trunk, but you're kind of out there in the mm-hmm. middle of nowhere, and it's just endless trunk, it seems like, while you're, while you're ascending there. Trunk. When you are in the middle of nowhere and there is no branch between you and the ground, you, your, um, your, your inner ear that does the balancing for your body, your, it doesn't have any frame of reference, so you develop vertigo. And a lot of people, you know, get dizzy or they will um, not be able to concentrate because their mind is sending them all these conflicting signals that, you know, they're in a dangerous spot. And it's just part of our self-preservation instinct. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's interesting. That kind of probably lays into the whole, like, the first 50 feet or so or yeah. of the trunk when there are no limbs beneath you. You're kind of like, eh. Yeah, like the scariest part of a big climb, I think. Well, and I, people, you know, I think a lot of tree climbers get that. People asking, like, "Aren't you afraid of heights?" And it's always like, "Yeah, yeah." You know, I think <laughs> it's pretty healthy to be afraid of heights because if you fall, you know, that's one of the, that fear makes me double check my tie-in points, mm-hmm. makes me make sure that I am on top of it. You know, it's more about overcoming that fear and using your logic and your, you know your knowledge to accomplish the task. If you're just going on emotion, it's probably not the best thing to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I always tell people, no, I'm not really afraid of heights, but I'm terrified of falling. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> terrified of falling. How, how'd you get into well, we're laughing. Or Go ahead. We're laughing and we're talking about it calmly and, and we're not hysterical. We're not like super afraid right this second. So the people that are listening to the uh, tree thinking podcast, are realizing that this is doable. They can do it. And it's it's really no different when you're up in a, a tree that, say, you're pruning the tree or you're doing a rec climb on a smaller tree. You've got two points of contact, you know, you got your slip line and you got your climbing line. And so you have redundant safety protocols. And, and that is the thing that keeps us safe is, is when we stick to what we know works. And it doesn't matter what the situation is because we're, we're just reducing it to where we are. Everything that we can reach with our fingers, you can reach out there and, and put that extra rope around that branch, and then you are 100% safe. Plus, you have your buddy, and he's with you. You're using the buddy system, and he's checking your gear. He sees your descender. He sees your ascender setup, and he, he knows all of the gear because he's been belaying you up until that point. Or you have been relaying her at that point, so so it's it's a uh, it's a question of uh, uh, just repeating what you've done over and over and over, and that makes it entirely doable. Yep, and I would I would just add to that if you're you know if you haven't done a bunch of tree climbing or big tree climbing and you want to get into it, uh, go to treeclimbingplanet.com. And Tim Kovar will teach you everything you need to know and set you on uh, adventure in life that will change your perspective. But I think the key, and it's kind of what you were saying there, is you know make sure you're with somebody that knows what they're doing and uh, can kind of help you through it. Tim is fantastic. Uh, we went climbing down at the Treehouse Conference down in Oregon, oh, cool. and uh, he he uh, he had a person there that he was totally focused on to aid them and to provide them the, the backup that uh, they needed. And, and then I had a person with me and we were in two trees side by side, Tim with his 
uh, progeny and mine with, with my newbie. And uh, when the first thing that, that the climber that I took up there did was he pulled out his iPad and he started taking pictures and then he called his mom. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> it's a whole different world these days. How'd you uh, get into uh, tree work? Well, I used to babysit um, at, at, for when my sister couldn't babysit. And the neighbor that lived one block away was an arborist back, uh, you know, back in the 60s. And uh, when I got out of high school in 1970, he needed somebody to load branches in his truck. And so some 17-year-old kid got, got the call, and I, I went at it. And it's been uh, a great fun ever since for the last 51 years. Wow. Wow. So That's amazing. Describe a little bit what the industry was like back in when you first started. Well, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles was a cutover uh, cactus and, and scrub brush, sagebrush, and it, it had been uh, orange orchards. Citrus industry is really big down there. But then around 1950 or so, um, that, that's when residences began. So uh, by the time I started in 1970, I had all these trees that were planted in 1950 that were starting to need help. And because Los Angeles is so dry, all of these gardens were irrigated and the trees were just growing like mad. So we had a, a plethora of Siberian elm trees. And the Siberian elm trees, I don't know if, if there's some of our listeners that are, that are in areas where this really hardy tree grows, they are bulletproof. You cannot kill a Siberian <laughs> elm tree. <laughs> So I was taught to top trees, and uh, and that's what I did for the first nine years. And we worked the Hollywood Hills neighborhood. Uh, um, and worked for a lot of movie stars. You know, worked for Marlon Brando, spent a week at his house. Worked for Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, and and a lot of celebrities. Wow. So so the you know we went where the money was. We were using a Manila rope, which is made out of hemp fiber, and uh, I only had two Manila ropes break on me. Um, one because I cut it with my chainsaw and then the other one just because it wore out. Oh man. <laughs> but uh, a, 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 a lowering line was a five eighths inch Manila rope and Manila is about half the strength of our modern uh, textiles. So uh, the safety margin was pretty skimpy and, and there were all kinds of issues with lowering lines breaking and stuff. But uh, of course, you know, it's, it's it's when your personal climbing line breaks that you know you got a problem because the ground rest, rushes upwards at 66 <laughs> feet per second. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no good. Not no good, good at all. When when you were uh, starting out down there in Los Angeles, did you have a mentor or someone that kind of helped uh, show you the ropes? Yeah, the, the guy that I worked for was a wannabe actor. And uh, his name was Big John, and uh, he did extra gigs in the, the, the movie and TV uh, commercial business. And he taught me how to climb, um, and it was all spur climbing and, and topping. So, uh, so by, by the time uh, you know, I was ready to move on, I started looking around. 
and I I went to my first uh, tree trimmer's jamboree and saw uh, Bob Hunter in 1980 um, win the Western chapter, and then uh, then the following year he won the the the, the uh, all time or the worldwide championship for two years in 1981 and 1982, and uh, so. Uh, he was famous for this photograph of him in a giant sequoia tree that he had hauled his bicycle up and he had the rope uh, holding the bicycle that he was on the bicycle and he looked like he was riding the, the bike up the side of this giant sequoia tree. Ah, that's awesome <laughs> that, that's hilarious because uh cory here has actually pulled bicycles out of the top of like a, a 80, giant 80 yeah. foot 80 giant foot sequoia. Giant sequoia. <laughs> Sounds familiar, huh? Something about uh, bicycles and giant sequoias, I guess. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. If you want to see that picture, it's on my Facebook page. I, I've got this Facebook group called Old Growth Tree Climbing. Okay. And uh, I, I have a whole bunch of these Facebook groups. One of them is called uh, Arborist Training. If there's any classes, I've I post those. I have one called Treehouse Instructing, which we have uh, 3,500 members of that, people around the world that, that uh, congregate together on Facebook and, and share their stories of how they, they uh, build treehouses. So I really like specific um, discussions. Like, like if, if I were to talk to any of you people, I would zoom in on something that you know a lot about and ask you the, the hard questions that the answers aren't easily available. Like, say, for example, you know, you, you want to talk about zip lines. The, uh, and I am, I am studying zip lines for an upcoming article in Arb Climber magazine. And I'm going to be giving a presentation on zip lines at the Pacific Northwest Chapter ISA uh, virtual conference this fall. So, so when I talk to people about zip lines, I want to know how to control the tension on two different ropes that are holding a trolley and uh, doubling, of course, the, the, the strength of your zip line and focusing on safety. And if you have had experience in some of the topics that are interesting to me, you and I will have a discussion where I pick your brain and then I can learn. It, it, so, so right now, I want you guys to teach me something. If you, if you could just tell me something that hardly anybody else knows, that is my version of what a successful conversation is like. I like that. I like that perspective of mm-hmm. trying to learn like that. I, and so now I'm curious about what you've learned about zip lines through your research. Well, the, 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 the issue with zip lines is that you have to start with a low weight and uh, not overdo it and test it and make sure that it's going to run before you put your full weight on it. And it, it's different when you have a zip line that's designed to hold a branch that you're lowering to the ground versus a rec climb zip line where you are designed, it's designed to hold a person and, and have that person ride in a fun little uh, burst of speed to the ground. So really it's your design that's the important thing. You, you have your tools, you know, you got your rope, you know, the rope's going to hold 5,400 pounds and you may decide to, to run two ropes and have two pulleys hanging from those ropes and then have your climber hooked on to that little trolley. Uh, but you have to actually be a physicist. You have to be a mechanical engineer. 
you have to know the limits of your equipment. And then you have to be able to read the trees. And the trees are the intangible. The tree is the thing that doesn't have a proof test mark on it. The tree wasn't tested to ANSI safety standards to be able to hold 5,400 pounds. So your ability to understand the morphology of the tree structure, the, the strength of the wood fiber, the type of wood that it is, you have to understand all of those things. And as a professional arborist, you can then put all that together and make sure that the that the zipline ride that you're conducting, either for a branch or for a recreational tree climber, is going to be a safe operation. Yep, yep. I, you know, that makes me think about a zipline I've set up in my backyard. I don't have any big trees in my yard, but my kids absolutely love the idea of a zipline. And the biggest tree I have is a pine tree. It, you know, it, it's really not that big, especially if you get up high enough in it so that you have a bit of an angle to it. And so one thing that I've, what I do for it is kind of along those lines of trying to create the safest system is I install a big block at the top, my biggest uh, block at the top. And then I roll, run the zip line through the pulley at the top of the tree and then go back at about a 45 degree angle and uh, secure it to the ground over there. That way when people are pulling on that rope while zip lining, instead of pulling the top of the tree over, it pushes the forces down into the trunk of the tree, trying to uh, use the strongest part of that tree. You know, instead of pulling sideways on the tree, it's kind of pushing straight down on it. You know, Great. So that that's uh, something that I've been kind of thinking about recently as I was setting a zip line up for my kids in our backyard. Yeah, changing where that force vector goes. Exactly. Orientation to the tree is is pretty crucial. Yeah, these are all the stuff. force factor. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all stuff that we do every day in like a rigging operation. You're thinking yep. about everything you just talked about, all those vector forces, the wood species, the the size, you know, the the load, everything, you know. And a after a few years of doing it, it just kind of you got to double check yourself. But you know, there's a natural feel on like, oh, uh, this part of the tree is where I should hang the block for rigging this piece out. You know. Yep. Yeah. So you're saying what? There's what you want to do, and then there's what the tree is going to let you. Do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But but that's how you approach any job. I mean, the ideal you know situation a lot of times is like send it as big a possible piece as you can. You know, in an ideal situation, you can just drop it. You don't have to spend the time setting up rigging. But then all of a sudden, there's a little tree under it, or there's a greenhouse under it. So these different factors become you know, the variables that you have to account for. And so you then you have to set up a rigging system because you can't just drop that trunk over in this direction. And, mm -hmm. you know, so it's kind of a similar problem-solving concept, uh, only when you're ziplining people down a zipline, there's that much more, you know, if, the, if you're ziplining a branch and it goes sideways and just gets crazy, you know, that's a bummer. You don't want it, you know, to hit something and, you know, hurt a tree or a bush or something. But if that zip line is a person, then you can, there's zero margin for error. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm curious, is there like a haulback line, like a belay attached to them? Or is it just like the, um, <clears throat> the dip in the rope that kind of slows them down before they reach the other tree? If it's a too steep of an angle, yeah, then you have to actually lower the, 
load down the zip line. Yeah. Other as opposed to free letting it run free. Okay, so you've done both. That's kind of what you're saying. Set them up. Yeah, you way. know there, there there was a fantastic zip line um, in a movie called Triapalooza. That's a YouTube movie, mm-hmm. and I I don't know if you guys are familiar with my YouTube channel, but I have about 650 videos on there. And Triapalooza was a it, it was about another 350 foot zip line that took place in December in Florida uh, last year in 2020 and, and I say 2020 because this podcast uh, could be played in 10 years. This podcast could be played in 50 years. Right. Yeah. Arborists in the future, they're going to be looking back. Well, what did they do around the year 2021? What were things like for arborists? And, and of course, you know, not much is going to change. Maybe the ropes might be stronger. You know, maybe the saddles are more comfortable. Who knows? But there used to be our, trees. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when there were trees. <laughs> <laughs> All the drones will be looking back at this podcast like, ah, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I would like to take a moment to say hi to the future intelligence that is listening <laughs> to this podcast. <laughs> You're right, though. It's and apologize. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the tree of Palooza uh, tree climbing competition uh, that was held in Florida. It, it, it was filmed, and it also had a magazine article written about it as a companion. And I, I'm a, I'm a multimedia person. I've always been uh, an internet junkie that likes to communicate with uh, strangers and pen pals. And I will cold call people. And so, so now, now I've got both the, the magazine article. The ten-page article and a thirteen-minute video, both about the same thing, both two different means of communication, but both uh, elaborating and building and expanding on the points that uh, the companion piece uh, elucidates. So that's w- that's what's going to happen in the future. Like like my grandkids know how to use uh, an iPad is better than I can use my phone because they've been doing it, uh, you know, since they were infants. And in the future, all of our contemporaries that uh, we are uh, setting up by, by training them, they will take our tree climbing techniques and build upon them. They'll refine them. They'll make them even better. And they, their job will be a lot easier because of what the people on this podcast uh, created for them by you know, requiring that ANSI standards make the safety equipment have the capacity to hold 5,400 pounds. And the, this, the, the, the fact that you put two hands on the chainsaw when you use it, the fact that you have a second rope on your body when you're using a chainsaw, those are groundbreaking things that have, that have only just happened in the last 20 years. And yet in 50 years, they will have been going on for 70 years. So, so, so we are the pioneers. We're creating these these scenarios that other people can learn from, and if we can explain ourselves properly, then they can learn it a lot more easier, uh, more easily than than the way we learned it, which is by screwing up. And uh, you know, everybody's had their mistakes. You know, like when those Manila ropes kept coming apart on me. You know, I I was one of the few people that survived a fall out of a tree. 
And there are so many people that do not have the ability to explain to us what they did wrong that caused them to die because they're dead. We'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. I think you had some great advice earlier when you were talking about sending a small piece first. To test it out. Test piece. Yeah, a little test piece. And that, that's when like a pretty <laughs> golden nugget. And, you know, and I think we can apply that to most things that we do here. Small cuts, small problems. Yeah, kind of thing. exactly. I, I set up a traverse once, a trill in traverse, uh, several hundred feet long, uh, fairly significant drop. So you got a pretty good zing on it. And um, we probably had maybe. 10 or 15 people do the traverse that day. It was at Camp Lane on the way to the coast. I got some nice big trees there. We had a big um, event for my mom. And um, and then a big guy went on the traverse, and he sank down lower and actually kind of clipped one of the limbs that the traverse was oh. going above. So, so um, you know, varying the amount of weight on a traverse does a lot of um it's a lot of fluctuations fluctuation yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, he was a little surprised Dang. <laughs> the branch and and so that makes me think you know uh kind of from the idea of learning from the mistakes you know trying to set up a, a zip line in a way that you can adjust the tension on it if you have varying weights going over it so whether you have a, a rope winch one of those mm-hmm. crank rope winches or a grcs or some way to maybe put a little more tension on if someone a little bigger is going to be on that line. Yeah. And you might want to take a little tension off if someone's smaller who's, you know, if you want that sag to slow you down. Yeah. You know, so yeah, that's kind of interesting. I got a question, Michael, what, what do you know the technical uh, kind of difference for a zip line in comparison to a Tyrolean traverse? I I believe Tyrolean is, uh, Kind of uh, the the um, in the Italian Alps uh, mountains that didn't that have to do with inertia where you where you um, you pull yourself sideways along a rock face so you have a big angle in your anchor up ahead oh, wow. and then when you release you, the whole the whole objective is for you to have momentum and blast yourself over to your next uh, swing. Yeah, so the Trillian Traverse, uh, maybe you don't go all the way to the uh, destination just by rolling on the pulley. You got to pull yourself o- over or have enough inertia to swing you over. We, we have this this amazing uh, uh, toolkit that have, that has been handed to us by the mountaineers. And I'm a firm believer in collaboration. And if, if we... Like there's a book called On Rope, and it, it's it was the Bible. Of course, now it's 20 years old, but uh, you know maybe they'll come out with a, a new version. But we need to associate with our uh, allied trades. We need to get humble. We need to let the ski patrol guy show us some stuff. We need to let paramedics show us some stuff. We need to let um, these uh, these search and rescue people. Uh, demonstrate to us, like like for example, they they have to have rope that that'll hold a two person load. They're not allowed to use our ropes. So 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 we have to uh, knuckle under basically and become the student. And at uh, Triapalooza, one way that we did that was with an aerial rescue simulation, where we hauled up an airplane fuselage 
and suspended it up in the branches of this huge oak tree. And we had um, five different crash test dummies that had notes pinned to them that said, oh, this is my injury. You have to do a medical examination of me. The one, one guy uh, uh, had scalp wound and, and, and another guy was dead. Another guy had fractures in his leg. And so the, the aerial rescue competitors were looking at these uh, simulated victims and trying to make appropriate decisions about uh, examining their injuries and then treating their injuries. Mm-hmm. And then when, when they lowered them from the airplane fuselage, they were scored on points in six-person teams. So uh, the, the collaboration between the, the person up in the tree in the fuselage with the ground people that were doing the lowering and the hoisting, they all had to uh, synergize together and, and combine their skills and uh, exploit the talents of their fellow teammates. And that is how we will develop these partnerships with these other first responders only by doing things that they do and, and having them do stuff that we do. So we need to be welcoming. We need to be uh, uh, reaching out and uh, collaborating better. I, uh, oh gosh, probably at least 14 years ago or so I, I called the fire department and, and said, I wanted to talk to their, uh, high angle rescue, whoever does their high angle rescue work. And, uh, they, they turned me, turned me on to my buddy, Dave McNeil and he and I, and, uh, Rich Hill and Ben Meyer and a couple other folks who work with the fire department, uh, developed, uh, um, an aerial rescue program and actually taught it to dozens of, of fire firefighters. And, uh, we collaborated with them and, and had a really successful, uh, class that we put on. It, it was pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we've, we've done some of that work and, and I can tell you that we, we learn a lot from each other and, um, it, it is great to, to bridge different kind of industries and occupations and, uh, learn from one another. It, it, it significantly helped a lot. When, when we first uh, met up with those firefighters and did that training back in the day, there is one of the things that stood out to me was that they, uh, they were always tied in twice. Uh, like you were saying, a minimum of tied in twice. And that because, you know, for them, they're doing different rescues. They've, they, a lot of them have never been in a tree before, so they don't understand moving around a tree. They just understand safety. If you got one, you got none. If you've got two, you got one is the saying they would say. And so they'd always be tied in twice. And then to their method of rescue was just going up and putting a pulley in the tree and then just having a bunch of people lower the victim down. Yeah. So, you know, they were like super into safety, you know, but then it was just they a bunch of backed up yeah. on the lower down. No, their all. idea was huh. just we're going to lower it down because you know they're who knows what situation they're in. They you know they're training for if someone's on a cliff or somewhere you know they yeah. might not have something to attach that lowering device to. So they call it just boy scouting up and get as all the guys together and you know uh, you get ten guys on the rope that it's not going to be that heavy. You know? oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it was really interesting seeing the difference in uh, the way people did it in different industries. And, you know, uh, some of those guys, Dave and Rich and those guys, we train with, you know, to this day. Oh, yeah. And 
you know, they've learned a lot of the tree climbing techniques that we taught them, and they're still using those. Some of them have started tree companies. Yeah, Arbreeze. Rich Hill's got his company, Arbreeze. He's doing a great job. Yep. And then uh, for me, what I took away was setting that line and just lowering them off of a completely different system. Whenever we'd train aerial rescue before, I'd go up and use the other person's system to get them down. But especially, you know, that was a while ago. We weren't doing as many uh, climbing systems as we do now. So now they could be on a number of different devices or single or double rope. or And so the idea of not having to understand how to work their system, but instead just putting them on a pulley and bringing them down has really kind of opened my eyes to, you know, just keeping it simple. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry, have they damaged their rope or anything like that? You just get them down. So, and that's what they did. And that, and uh, what's the guy's name in the plane? Dudek. Oh, yeah. Jason Dudek. Yeah. yeah. We had a guest on that had just done an aerial rescue in a plane. Had you heard about that, Michael? Yeah, I listened to his tree stuff interview. That was fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he came on the podcast and, and explained the rescue, and it sounds like that that's the technique that he used yep. or that they used was uh, basically setting an anchor above the, the plane and then picking the people off just as if they were lower down and lowering mm-hmm. them to the ground. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, there's a branch of Whisper, uh and they have classes, and they put on this one class called uh, uh, Aerial Rescue Challenge that was just fantastic. Nice. And the more people that we could rub elbows with and, uh, uh, you know, expand our horizons, the, the more we're going to benefit ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that rescue challenge that you're talking about, I'm aware of that. And they, you're talking about the crossover, and they did that. They, they took a bunch of rope access techniques and blended that with arboriculture. Interesting. So they were doing rope access rescues. You know, yeah. Arborists yeah, were, I've got were, about 250 photos of the aerial rescue challenge oh, on cool. my Facebook nice. page and seven hours of video. Nice. I, I'm going to go check it out. I recorded all of those lectures. That's awesome. Wow. Oh, yeah, I missed that because I heard about it too late. I was talking to Dave Stice at a competition. He's like, are you going to be at the ARC? And I was like, I don't know what that is. And yeah, it was like the next week or something, so I missed it. Yeah. And then COVID happened. Yeah, we all paused the world for a little bit. Yeah, What's COVID? <laughs> 19. The 19. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, back in 2019. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the... I don't know if it's a, a symptom of the internet age or it's, if it's just kind of an outcropping of it, but there's just so much interchange between all these industries and you can learn, like you can take little tidbits from somebody because there's, it's, it's not, it's not just, you know, you're just a firefighter or you're just a rope access guy or you're just an arborist. Like everybody can kind of meld everything that's going on into kind of the synthesis of, um, you know, proper techniques and learning, learning things that are maybe better. Like you see that little, like, from an outsider's perspective, you wouldn't, or if, if you're like in the thick of it, you wouldn't really see that, you know, putting six guys on a rope might not be the best idea, but an arborist is like, well, maybe that's, maybe that's not the best idea. Or, you know, with rope access guys, you know, it's, um, or a firefighter, he, he looks at your system and he's like, well, why are you just using his system? Set up a separate system. Maybe his system is compromised, you know? Yeah. Having that outsider perspective is definitely pretty valuable. Oh yeah. Oh Yeah. We all all follow the same rules, the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's a couple events coming up I hope to see you people at. You know, the the NAOM is coming up in uh, Wichita, Kansas, uh, July 23rd, I think it is. And 
That's the North American Open Masters tree climbing competition. Uh, and then there's going to be another one uh, in October uh, 2000, uh, 2021 in uh, city of Rogue River, Oregon. Oh, yeah. Well, I just oh, came really? from the NAOM in Virginia, which was really amazing. That was a, 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 an old state uh, property that had 300-year-old trees. There was a beech tree, and we set a world record uh, putting the most number of hammocks in one tree. <laughs> we did 85 hammocks out there in Williamsburg, Virginia. Yeah, I saw a picture of that. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that is pretty sweet. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, a friend of mine is helping put on the Naom in Rogue River, so I will definitely be at that one. Nice. Yeah. Well, well that's going to take that that's going to take a big cadre of volunteers. So absolutely, so spread the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you guys want, if someone listening wants to check it out and uh, volunteer, what's the best way to get a hold of someone to volunteer? Probably get a hold Naom. of Naom. Yeah. Yep. Naom in uh, uh, Facebook. Mm-hmm. N A O M. Perfect. Check it out. Let's get some volunteers out there. Uh, yeah, and then and then also another thing in, in Virginia with Naom, we did a, a tree fund auction, and there was a crossbow that was donated to the tree fund, and uh, we sold that to the highest bidder, and, and that money will go towards uh, scholarships for uh, arborists who are enrolled in college. That's cool. Oh, that's awesome. That is really cool. Um. I'm kind of wondering, uh, in you, you've obviously been around tree work for a while. And one of the things that we're, we've actually been talking about doing an episode on it. And I'd, I'd be interested if you have any definitive moments in your career that you'd be willing to share. You know, there's, I think everybody's had definitive moments that have helped them grow as an arborist or as a tree climber. Maybe it's, you know, working with somebody or maybe it's a, a, a close call or who knows, it could be anything. But is can you think of anything in your career that kind of uh, that you consider a definitive moment? You know, I always wanted to be fast and I always felt discouraged because I could see the other climbers around me were more efficient than I were than I was, that, that they had uh, a better assessment of the tree than I did. And uh, the, the thing that made me realize I had finally uh, arrived was when I was taking down this tree that had a porch roof underneath it that was made out of this lattice work, really weak wood. And any branch would have smashed this roof. And uh, it was a rich person's house. And uh, it was, a, it was uh, the gal that owns Kemper Insurance. Uh, in a huge corporation. And I realized that if I screwed up and dropped something through her little porch, that uh, that that would be uh, basically uh, my moment of shame. And so I'm, I had cut some pretty big chunks. And as I'm tipping them away from the house and, and getting them onto the rope, uh, I realized that there isn't anybody better to do this job than me. Because I had worked for her several times. I knew her property. I knew where the pathways were alongside the porch. I knew where her little lamps were that lit those pathways up leading up to the steps going to the porch. And so it, if I, I was afraid. I was afraid of screwing up. And yet I finally realized that I had the background and the training uh, and the familiarity with the site 
uh, to put together with my understanding of working the tree, my saw, the ropes, and the other gear. So really putting it all together uh, was, uh, uh, that, that was a high point for me. Yeah, and I think you touched on something important there. It's not, it's not just, you know, the skills that you bring to the table. It's, it's also those relationships that you build. Like, does, does that person trust you? Like, that's a huge part of our industry. And like, you know, that, that's, yeah, that's a huge undervalued part, I think, of our industry that nobody really, really talks about as much. Well, look at those firemen. They, they were all hoisting that that guy out of that airplane and, and lowering him to the ground with Jason. Those firemen live together. They know how they march. They yeah. they know everything about each other, and so so we have all this awareness. And if we can put it all together, that that is the mark of a professional. Yeah, hey, yeah, about creating the team. Because after all, tree work is totally a, uh, it's a team sport that way. You know, no matter, uh, you know, no matter how fast a climber you are, you're not going to be able to do the job if you don't have someone roping the, you know, running the ropes and cleaning up and uh, kind of filling all those roles. Michael, do you have any questions for us? Well, I, you know, I, I want to see where podcast goes, you know, uh, I, I really believe that uh, this kind of sharing forum is, is really important because, like, say, say you're a, a climber that's been working for a year in the trees and, and you, you have your 100 trees under your belt, but then you're starting to realize, wow, I, I could be doing things a lot different. I want to be fast. I want to know ahead of time what my next step's going to be. I want to know what's the most dangerous thing for me right now. I want to know what is the next tool I should be grabbing. I want to know which fork am I going to step into next. How can how can people really explain that to somebody else without that person just having to go make it up themselves? It, you know, it, 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 if anybody could tell me that, I, I'd love to hear that answer. Yeah. Um, well, it- Oh, go ahead. I would like to attest to that because I feel like that's exactly where I'm at in my career. I'm like kind of just getting more and more comfortable every day with climbing <clears throat> um, and, and working in trees. And yeah, that's a great question. And I'm really lucky that I have mentors and patients and things like that. But I know that that's not the case for everyone. So, um, you know, between all the resources that we have online, um, mentors that you have and friends that you have that you work with, and just, again, like you said, trusting the people that you're working with. You know, I, I don't know what goes beyond that, but. Uh, what, what we do um, at Sperry Tree Care is uh, once a month we have something called Tree School. And mm-hmm. that's where the company comes together and just spends a couple hours um, on educational subjects and teachings and uh, questions and answers and sharing near misses and things we've learned. And we do, I mean, we go through different phases, like every kind of operation, it seems like. But, um, you know, there there's a lot of, lot of mornings where we'll circle up and just do uh, near misses, you know, from, Mm -hmm. from the, the day before the week and, um, you know, providing that, that space in a company 
for continuing education and sharing stories and giving advice. You know, we do aerial rescue on a regular basis and we do uh, pruning, you know, fruit tree pruning and uh, climbing and, you know, lots of different, lots of different trainings just in house on a pretty regular basis, you know, and that it's made it to where, um, you know, what, what took, I mean, other than the experience of doing it, people are learning the skills like literally 10 times faster. Yeah. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing. Because you're putting the ideas in their head before they have a chance to try it out for themselves. And then once they do, they're. And they have resources. Exactly. They have people to talk to and ask. And, and it, it just, it, we're creating an environment where, you know, asking a question about how to do something is a good thing, not something that you should be looked down on because you don't know the answer to it. Yeah. You know, so encouraging people to be asking questions and sharing near misses. No one's going to get in trouble if you said, oh, my gosh, I just realized that the little loop in the bullion was the only thing holding that lower down. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, that was a near miss. Let's talk about it. You know, instead of getting someone in trouble, we'll just all learn from it. Well, and I think what you said there that was really key is creating the culture. You know, if you're a business owner or, you know, you don't even have to be a business owner. Really, anybody on a crew can help create a culture. You know, and it's about, you know, if someone has a near miss, instead of getting on their case and yelling at them, instead approaching it with a attitude of, you know, okay, what did what did wrong. we do yeah. wrong there? Yeah. What in not what did you do wrong there? What did we do wrong there? Because when something goes wrong, everybody on the crew, if you have a crew where even the guy on the bottom of the chain can is allowed to speak up then it's on everybody if something goes wrong because we should all be watching each other. Nothing should be happening in a vacuum. And in, mm-hmm. if something's going wrong, everybody should talk about it. You know, and if, you, if, if that's not the culture, if you don't have the culture where everybody can speak up about safety, well, then that might be something that's, uh, you know, impeding the growth mm-hmm. right there. You know, so I think it's about having an open culture where you can have an open dialogue whether it's good or bad, you know, also, you know, if, if something does, if you see someone do something that's awesome, you shouldn't be afraid to go to them and be like, whoa, how did you do that? What did you do right there? What, you know, how did you make that branch kind of move sideways or, you know, whatever happened, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's about having a culture of sharing and learning for better or worse. And less critical making it a safe space where they can say the things that, that they're not sure about and not have somebody ridicule them. Yeah. 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 That, that's a great way to put it. You know, that's exactly what, what we try and do is, is uh, not, not look down on people that make mistakes, but learn from them. Cause I think that, I mean, that's key. Everybody has made a mistake at some point. Mm-hmm. Everybody's done something and regretted it. Everybody's, you know, had a, a moment where they, you know, maybe tied a knot wrong and then it, you know, and then the lower down slipped or whatever it is. Well, and it goes for more than just tree work. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and <laughs> and when you do that, everybody knows that feeling of like feeling just so small, like, oh, shit, I just that near miss was on me. And there's some people that hurt somebody or did something really bad where they dropped a branch and it landed on their buddy. And then I guarantee that's a feeling of shit that sticks with you for a long time. Yeah, I'd I'll imagine. never, I'll never forget, Chris. Sorry for hitting you in the top of with the top of that fir tree. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <That's always good>. <laughs> <laughs> but I think too, if you're on a crew and you know the people that you work with pretty well, you can suss out like where they're at 
And if they want to try something that they're not used to, that you know how to do, like just kind of being there to talk them through it in a way that isn't condescending, like is supportive and helpful. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It, it makes it, them It's like, necessary. Excited. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, like that's your coworker. That's somebody that you're going to have to be dealing with in the future. So you're not just helping them, but you're building a relationship with somebody that could be helping you in the future. Yeah. If you are criticizing, you know, just please do it in private. Like, like on the internet, there's a lot of loose talk thrown around in a critical yeah. way. And, and I had to send a, a message to, to somebody in a, a private message and just say, you know, just because you don't like what they did does not mean that they're a horrible person. Their mother loves them. Aww. They are somebody's kid. And your job is to be happy. We are doing fantastic work here. Yeah. But does it make us happy? If it doesn't, we should get out and go do something else. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen because tree work is the best kind of work. All oh, of yeah. the people listening to the <laughs> a Tree Thinking podcast are probably really digging on where they're at right now because they have some amazing tools uh, available to help them do these trees. Yeah. I, well I would said. second that. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> Very crucial. Yeah. It, you know, it's an interesting thing that I've noticed now that we have Senna communication systems you know, I'm on a crew where uh, it's it makes it a lot harder because in the moment when something when someone makes a mistake, you know, before in the moment you could kind of pull them to the side and say something real quick, but now that there's Senate communication systems, it may it I've almost had to adjust my strategy there because you know if someone makes this mistake, you can't just be like, hey, dude, uh, you know, maybe next time you want to do this differently. Because people, you know, if the whole crew is hearing you give the creative criticism to them, they might not think it's creative. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. you know, so it, it's kind of uh, an interesting uh, dilemma I've run into. But at the same time with the sun, as you can see someone doing something that you would be like, that's kind of sketchy and just like really discreetly be like, hey, man, tip tie it instead. Yeah, yeah. While yeah. the chipper's running instead of be like. <laughs> Hey, what are you doing? You know, yeah. Yeah. I never yeah. thought about that flip side of it. That's true. I yeah. do find myself quite as Corey will <laughs> will say, giving people advice a lot more often. If I see something that I, you know, even if it's not going to go sideways, even if I just have like, hey, this little trick might help you out a little bit. Yeah, tie it here instead of there, and then you might get this result I, or I whatever. I personally have found that like as a newcomer to the whole thing to be just like. It's awesome because That's you don't great. have to yell at me about how yeah. to do it differently, but I'm like, oh yeah, no, duh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah even with good, in, good intentions, if you're shouting something, like, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, it's just a little stink <laughs> on it, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's got blue cheese smell. Yeah. It's like, it's good, but mm, it's a little funky. <laughs> just plug your nose. <laughs> it yeah. does help if you can read their mind though. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of on a, a downward spiral. I am now, the groundman for my son who's fun uh -huh. and, and we we do have the ability to read what each other's thinking without actually having to say some, something so 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 as we as we uh you know, work with people we have you know really complex relationships and and if it's going to make us happy that is going to work to our advantage yeah yeah, well, you know what? It's only a matter of time till uh, Elon Musk develops the Neuralink, and we'll all just be on the exact same page on the tree crew. <laughs> oh, yeah. Senna's will be old school. 
<laughs> and we'll all be just in each other's heads. Oh, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Do you think that your phone is going to be um, hooked up to your your eyes, your eyeball? Uh, it's only a matter of time. I yeah. really hope not. I could see, like... I've I've had conversations probably with you, Andrew, about this. Some of our <laughs> weird like stuff, but I yeah. see like, oh yeah, we can go down the r- rabbit hole if you guys want to. No. I see like <laughs> augmented reality becoming more common, not like virtual reality where you're totally in this whole different oh, world, but universal augmented. language. Yeah, or augmented reality, like you have these glasses and your Google Maps is in front of you, like the arrow is on the road in front of you. Pointing mm. here. There's a Yelp yeah. review at that restaurant or whatever <laughs> above your head. Or I you could can see like that happening. Put filters yeah. on girls at the bar that are. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the beer does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who needs it? Well, take that Google. Yeah, I mean they have. I've. I don't know much about them, but they had those Google goggles. Isn't that kind of what the idea behind those were? The Google must not have taken uh, off or something. I I think it was, I don't know what it was, but I think it was just not, it wasn't quite integrated enough. And there was probably, I mean, Wi-Fi isn't ubiquitous enough or like, um, you know, exposure to um, a cell signal or whatever isn't ubiquitous enough. So I think it was maybe the little pockets of when you weren't actually connected that kind of broke the immersion. Okay, so maybe. maybe maybe with those things, they were just a little bit ahead of their time. Yes. Like the technology for the goggles were there, but the interconnectivity amongst the world wasn't there yet. And it's, the, like, it's like coming up with a hydrogen car at the turn of the century. We, we, we needed ready. 5G. Yeah. We, we, we didn't ready. have 5G yet. So. Oh, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. I, well, the arborists in 20 years are going to be listening to this, and they're going to go, oh, wow, these guys were so primitive. They still had phones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're still cutting trees with chainsaws. Where's the laser saw? Well, they're talking about wiring it straight into your brain so that uh, <laughs> you're basically, and they've already, they've got those neural links that they've wired into pig brains yeah. and whatnot. So oh, mon- Monkeys are playing video games Look, the whole nine yards. I'm not impressed until I get a rigging rocket. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I'm Obviously. working on it. <laughs> the toss boss. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, but the disconnect between us and our phones is going to get shorter and shorter. You know. Wait, I mean? So, so Michael, are, are you familiar with Neuralink? No. Okay, it's a it's a computer uh, chip that they would they would put into your uh, head and it would connect into your brain and your and your it would interface with your body. Um, and basically be like a really, um, uh, major assist to learning and to storing information. You would, you would, you could never forget anything if you didn't want to, or you could learn a new language by downloading it or, um, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, if, if this technology existed, do you think that you would, you would get it if it was affordable? The, ter- the Terminator Arborist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I, I just got a new camera, guys. Okay. Uh, I got the Sony RX10. It's a Cybershot camera. It's a homeowner camera. It costs uh, $1,700, and it has a 25-power lens on it. And wow. it's basically a stalker camera. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> oh, you can see stuff up in the tree. And, in fact, if you look on... Uh, I did a magazine cover you mean uh, from shot. up in the tree. Or? <laughs> <laughs> Access and Rescue magazine um, had this picture that I took. I was standing about 300 feet away next to my tripod with I had digital zoom. So all of that, all of a sudden, that uh, 
that 25 power lens became a 50 power lens. And it looked like you were up in the tree with these guys that are helping this uh, simulated uh, rescue victim. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the cameras are just totally amazing. Mm-hmm. And I have always felt that, that these toys are tools and that they're fun to work, but they're also um, uh, incredible boosts to productivity. Mm. So is that a yes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would be a guinea pig. In, in fact, <laughs> it's a soft yes. Yeah. <laughs> if Elon Musk wanted to make space on his flight next month, I'll go with him. Oh hell yeah, yeah, yeah man! Right on. <laughs> hey, you never know if they're gonna find you know trees on Mars that would need to be pruned. Like we'll be there. <laughs> yeah, I watched the demonstration on Neuralink, and it's like the size of a quarter, I think. And he's got a robot that does the whole procedure. Yep. It would take like a half hour and be affordable. He'd be in and yeah, out. Same cost as LASIK surgery. You, you, go down, you go down to the Mac store. Yeah. <laughs> you get, get your half hour surgery. Yeah, little to no recovery. You're just, I'll be over here like 60 years old with yeah. my Senna headset that's all busted. Like, but, I'm never getting a Neuralink. <laughs> One of the things he talked about is it could fix like neurological disorders. So like yeah. say Parkinson, you're confined yeah. to a wheelchair or something for that, you know. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. great. And, and so that interviews with him that I've heard, he's talked about initially it's going to be for people that just, you know, are having issues yeah. with their neurological issues or whatnot. And, and as they perfect it on people that don't have any other option than trying this experimental surgery, then they'll start well, next figuring to the out. life force of the tree. The life force. Oh, man. The life force of the tree. I mean, you know, I, if I could have that plugged into my brain, oh, yeah. I could listen and, yeah. and talk to the tree. Yeah. Well, now we're talking. Could you Neuralink a tree? This makes me think of, I, okay, I just like saw this in passing, so I don't know a lot about it, but there's some kind of uh, thing you can hook up to plants and trees and it, and it creates like a musical signal out of it. Like their their vibrations or frequencies That's or like whatever. It's like two different points. Yeah, I, I should look it up before yeah, I start talking. Yeah, I want to hear some of this music. <laughs> yeah. Activate my neural link right now. Did, did, <laughs> I feel like NPR did something on this, and they actually played some of the music that the plant was playing. I think. Wow, what? What? Yeah, it was. NPR was f- featured a plant on their, on, on their music. I, I think so. Wow, that's incredible. Well, uh, Dr. Alex Shigo said, "Touch trees." Yeah, and yeah. if if we touch them in a uh, kind of touch their nervous system. That's just a, a, a modern uh, version. And he did invent the shigometer, which is kind of like a, 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 a primitive version of a, you know, uh, uh, one of these uh, uh, new devices that that uses uh, sound waves. I like telegraph. So, so, so we we have unlimited uh, technology in our future. Technology is only like fifty years old or less. So, so. In the future, when 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 these tools become available to us, they still have to make us happy. That's the main thing, right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love how everything with you comes back to making you happy. <laughs> it's very. Important. Oh, I. You know, I. I, I have a friend, uh, Michael Garnier, who has the Treehouse Resort, and uh, I was just sitting there when some tourists came through, and we're we're, you know, standing around talking, and they asked him. Uh, why he decided to get into being an innkeeper at a treehouse bed and breakfast. And he said, well, you know, I used to be, uh, I was a medic in Vietnam. And when I came back to the States, I, I was a nurse 
and I decided to switch careers. And now that I'm working with tree houses, I run into very few assholes. <laughs> Physically or I don't know if you can say that on the internet, though. No, no, yeah, you can. That doesn't apply for tree work. I run into plenty of assholes. Uh, yeah. I'm just kidding. No, you're not. Well, well I hope here. I'm not getting in trouble, Andrew. Oh, no, no not no, at no. all. Yeah, anything goes. <laughs> Well, we're just trying to be honest and, and you know, give our, our true impression of, of what we do. And and we we have this wonderful ability to give the gift of a healthier tree to a tree owner. And and they appreciate us. They love us because because we're taking care of their tree for them. We're doing a better job of taking care of the tree than they could do themselves. So that is an extremely valuable public service. And all of the arborists around the world are to be congratulated on accomplishing the proficiency that they take care of these trees and, and they extend the lifespans of the trees that, that they work on. All of you people are out there making a better world. And, and we are public service providers. We, we are not actually tree doctors. We do not take care of trees. We take care of tree owners' problems. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to another reoccurring theme that I, you know, that keeps coming up on these episodes is that as arborists, as tree people, it is our job to uh, kind of speak for the trees sometimes or not sometimes a lot of the time, because, you know, the trees can't uh, speak for themselves, you know, and a lot of the people don't understand what a tree really needs. And so they want it topped because, you know, uh, that's just what they've heard over the years is you top the tree to eliminate the risk. But it's really our job as an arborist to explain why you don't top a tree or, you know, the importance of having these trees around. Our future depends on their survival. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And really, that's quite a bit of a responsibility. You know, that's not just something if you're if you're an arborist, if you dedicate your life and your career to taking care of trees then it is your responsibility to to do that. And a big part of that is advocating for them. Absolutely. You know, there was a heritage tree program uh, uh, around the time of the bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution. And in uh, 1787, uh, you know, there were some trees that are around now that were um, recognized by the ISA and the NAA. Uh, National Arborist Association was the name of the uh, Tree Care Industry Association before. So I was privileged to uh, be part of a nationwide search for 200-year-old trees in 1987 to recognize our association with uh, human society and the forests that we live in. And so I nominated the world's tallest ponderosa pine, which was in a Forest Service campground down in um, Grants Pass, Oregon. And, uh, you know, we, we, we recognized the fact that this tree had witnessed our lives the, all through its life. That- and um, then, then uh, part, of the, part of the requirement to qualify to be able to be one of the sponsors was uh, I had to a- agree to adopt the tree. So in the end, there were 61 trees nationwide that made it onto this heritage tree registry. And... Um, uh, so it was a great uh, it was a great public service 
campaign by these tree care industry associations, and each tree got a bronze plaque. So, uh, so time goes on, you know, it, the the dedication ceremony was over. You know, the mayor who gave the speech, the TV cameras that were there, uh, the the all all of the hoopla around the heritage of this tree uh, was over. And I decided to go visit my tree about uh, five years ago. It's called the Big Pine, and it was in Big Pine Campground in the Siskiyou National Forest. So I drove up there. I was on my way back from the treehouse conference, and I saw that the bark beetles had gotten it. And uh, there was a bunch of sawdust around the base of the tree, and all the sap leaked out. The tree was dead. All the needles were brown. So I called the ranger and I said, hey, uh, you know, can I have that bronze plaque that's, uh, you know, on a pedestal next to the tree? And uh, he he said no. And I pissed him off. And I said, well, you know, I donated that. He said, yes, but it's ours now, Mr. Oxman. And (laughs) so that made me mad. And I got on my, my little keyboard and I started calling people and I made friends with this uh, environmental curator uh, uh, who worked for the Smithsonian. And he was able to get the plaque, and it's in the Smithsonian now. Oh, whoa. And it's the only artifact that the ISA has in the Smithsonian. Oh, that's so, uh, cool. I was so, actually... so this curator, you wouldn't believe what he said. He, he said that the volunteer work that we do to educate people about the value and importance of trees and the fact that we're doing it for free just to boost our society makes us environmental philanthropists. Mm. And he also said that because the work that the ISA does uh, was included in in the, the acquisition of this bronze plaque and all the documents, the files, I saved everything. I saved the letter from the governor. I saved the agenda. I saved the press release from the heritage tree dedication ceremony. And those are all in the uh, Smithsonian uh, uh, exhibit files. And he told me that the, the, the job description of an arborist is been extended now uh, from the time that the tree is planted until the, uh, you know, all the work that we do to take care of the tree until it dies. But now because the Smithsonian will contain all of the mission of the ISA and the NAA, we have extended our job description into perpetuity. Wow. You hear that, Arborists of the future? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's uh, there's some Arborists in the future understanding that now, listening to this podcast through their Neuralink. <laughs> and <laughs> that is really cool, though. That's incredible. Yeah. I didn't know that there was any ISA relic in the Smithsonian. Yeah. That's fantastic. No, that that's next level because that, I mean, that'll be around for a while. Yeah. yeah actually, You heard it here on Thinking. Uh, tree. On <laughs> thinking. Perfect. Here we are. I visited that tree probably two years ago. I mean, knowing it was is dead, but we just went to go see it anyway. I think the campground is closed around it and everything. Um, and they're they're just letting it be. Yeah, I don't recall seeing a plaque or not. Well, you know, that's pretty cool cuz there's uh there's a there's a debate to be had on whether there's more life in a dead tree or in a living tree. Oh, it's a second life for sure. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's not it, dead. It's not <laughs> dead. There's It's not life with the way that we think of life. Yeah. No, no, no but it it 
you know, it is the continuation of that creature. Absolutely. You know, the, when the full circle is being completed there. So that's cool that they allow that to happen. Yeah, trees aren't dead until never. Exactly. <laughs> Energy does not die. Nope. Oh, that, that. Well, we've, we've had an amazing responsibility handed to us. Yeah. And I'm glad that you folks are in it with me. Oh, yeah. No, it, it's great. You know, it, it it's amazing the things that we're learning on this. We we started this podcast just as a way during the pandemic to kind of stay connected and to reach out to arborists and, you know, keep the community going around us as much as we could because we were kind of missing, you know, all the competitions and conferences and hanging out with our friends. And, it you know, in a lot of ways, it's going so far beyond that, learning about the ISA being in the Smithsonian and all this stuff is just it. Uh, you never know what you're going to learn on one of these shows. It's great. I'm loving it. Well, yeah, right on. Well, um, you know, I think we've got to the point in the show where, uh, unless you have anything else you want to say, Michael, do you have any? Before we get going, is there anything you want to plug? Is there? Uh, how can people find you if they have any questions? Uh, is there anything you want to add before we get going? Well, you can surf on over to treedoctor.com, which is spelled T-R-E-E-D-R.com. That, that's the website that's been up for 20 years. And uh, send me an email. I'd love to see what you guys are up to. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on uh, Instagram as uh tree underline dr my license plate on my truck is t-r-e-e-d-r and my <laughs> phone number is uh 949-8733 which is um uh, don't all phone numbers end in 8733 <laughs> yours does <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right on well uh let's get into the final thoughts rob what do you got Oh, I, um, I'm really happy to get to know you a little bit, Michael. I think that, uh, you seem to have, have, uh, had a very rewarding, uh, life and career and care about trees and you're, you're, uh, seem like a wonderful person and thanks for sharing everything. Well, that guy that I sent that private message to criticizing him for criticizing others, he might not think that I'm just a wonderful person. Yeah. <laughs> we all have critics <laughs> sounds like he doesn't think anyone's a wonderful person yeah. <laughs> um yeah i just want to say thanks for uh everything you do you know it seems like you're very prolific on the facebook groups and like building communities um i commend you for that that's really cool it was really nice to uh talk to you and get to know you a little bit and i look forward to probably seeing you in the future maybe at a uh, naom Fantastic. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, thanks for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Some of the stuff that you said really resonated with me. Again, like small cuts, small problems, and, um, you know, having a community and people that are there teaching you and making it safer and all those great questions you asked. Um, so I guess my final thoughts are that you're awesome, and I appreciate you being here and talking to us. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad that most of your trees are ahead of you. Now, just think how depressed you would be if you were me. Oh I will never climb again. Oh, no. Well. You got good stories this year, though. That's true, yeah. Have you used a Ronin ascender? 
actually my son Robert um he has a video on uh, on the uh, Redwood Rec Climb and Camp Out uh, Facebook page. Uh-huh. You can check that out. Okay. Yeah, I guess my takeaway from this is just, uh, I mean, it's one of the core values of the Tree Thinking Podcast, just community and building that community mm-hmm. and how, how it's so intertwined in everything we do. Um, you know, it's we wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for the community that surrounds us. And I think that that is really one of the big big benefits of this uh, profession is just how, how deeply intertwined community is into everything. Yeah. Wow. Are you, are you just preaching to the choir? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's final thoughts. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to kind of go in a different direction. I'm going with the relationships that we build. <laughs> no, Weird. yeah. So I mean, it, it's kind of going back to, uh, that that was one of the reoccurring themes you know it, it's the relationships that we build we we are lucky to do the job that we do and work with the people we work with you know and the other thing that i really liked you talking about is how we're pioneering the future you know it's easy to get caught up with we're just kind of doing our job but you know what we're learning the right now is the building blocks that the next lesson will be learned on you know and so uh you know, I kind of like that concept of that we're that we're pioneering the future. Um, and I guess if you're uh, if you're listening to this on your Neuralink, I'm just going <laughs> to say stay safe and uh, eye to the future. <laughs>